1: Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you today from the offices of Baidu USA in Sunnyvale, California. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who many people are saying was actually the founder of ISIS. Jeremy, great to see you. <laughs> great to see you, Kaiser. Uh, thank you for that, uh, that wonderful introduction. It was sarcasm. Don't you people understand sarcasm? Well, what is sarcasm? <laughs> <laughs> you mainstream media types, I tell you. Um uh, gentle listeners, you are doubtless wondering why I am back here at my erstwhile employer's Silicon Valley offices. I left Baidu, as many of you know, at the end of April of this year. And I think it's still important to remind listeners of that fact by way of disclosure. That I am no longer an employee and own no shares in the company, but I am still somebody with lots of friends here at Baidu. And today we are here to talk to one of them. Today on Seneca, we are absolutely delighted to be joined by one of the world's leading minds on artificial intelligence and particularly on the approach to AI known as deep learning. He's co-founder and chairman of the massive open online course or MOOC platform, Coursera. And since May of 2014, he has served as Baidu's chief scientist and head of Baidu research. We were talking, of course, about Andrew Eng. Andrew, welcome to Seneca and thanks for having us here.
2: Thanks, Kaiser. After listening to you guys' this show so much, it's nice to be on it.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that you're a listener. Definitely a fan. Awesome, awesome. So, Andrew, part of the reason we are so keen to talk to you is that you are among a small number of people who I know who actually regularly travels back and forth between China and here in, in the Valley. And you are deeply immersed in both of these tech centers, but you're still kind of in possession of a fresh set of eyes. You haven't been in the the China thing for so very long when it comes to tech. Not like me, you know, I've been there since the very beginning, and I've kind of lost perspective on what the tech scene looks like. So you're in a great position to compare and contrast. So, um Andrew, I mean, let's start by asking you, how much attention had you paid to the tech scene
0: in China before being approached about jo- joining a Baidu, a Chinese tech company? Gosh, I'm
2: embarrassed to say not that much. Uh, I had friends working in Baidu and a few other companies, and you read about it in the media. But to most tech people living just in the United States, China is a little bit all the side of the mind. And innovations that happen in China get percolated only very slowly, mainly via the media back to the United States.
1: So what misgivings might you have had? I mean, you didn't know a whole lot about the tech scene. Did you come into it with preconceptions about the Chinese tech industry? What were those? And were you disabused of any of them or confirmed in your thinking about the tech scene in China, from you know your first brushes with it here at Baidu.
2: So I guess for some time been following the AI part of the China tech scene, and so I certainly saw that take off. Uh, it was only after I immersed myself in Baidu and the China tech scene that I realized all the other things going on from product innovations, business innovations. You know the fact that almost every Chinese internet company is a wartime company, and uh, the intensity of the competition is something that is not experienced in a in a day to day basis in Silicon Valley. The way that it is in Beijing is just so much more dynamic and competitive, intensely competitive over there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. oh, it's it's crazy. I mean, the hours, that that spirit of constant warfare, right? I mean, I think war mentality is probably right.
2: Yeah. And I think also, you know, there are huge prizes out there in China to be had by the large tech companies. And a bunch of us will go fight these wars. And if we win, the, and, and we win
0: some, we lose some. But whenever we win, the prizes are huge. You win big. So how have you been getting your key US-based uh, staff, um, the ones who don't speak Chinese or have family or personal ties to China? Uh, how do you get these people up to speed on the on the Chinese internet and tech landscape? Because it is, as you said, so different.
2: I think that even today it is difficult for someone living just in the U.S. to get that visceral understanding of what's really happening in China. I think our U.S.-based employees do have a reasonable sense, uh, but it is, you know, but whenever we have visitors from China, we ask them to do a bunch of demos. We fire a lot of our teams over to China. We do all the obvious things. It helps a lot. But I think that there's still so much that happens in China that those of us that live in the United States still should learn from.
1: So you've worked with tech R&D talent, you know, hardware and software both on, on both sides of the Pacific here in Silicon Valley and of course in China. Now you've got a sizable team of people who have learned their skills uh, here in the US and aside from working for a, a Chinese company have no other real ties to China. Are there generalizations you'd be willing to make about? how they approach problem solving what their capabilities are maybe even in their styles of code you've seen i mean i have i've, I've well, looked into this question for example with respect to indian versus chinese coders and um, i think most people would have con- agreed that there were there were very pronounced differences a lot of people would have been able to tell me that i can look at code written by a chinese engineer versus an, an indian engineer and tell you which is which what about what about here in the us versus china are there different styles or are there different capabilities
2: yeah, I don't know that great answer to that. Um, I feel like that if you were to take some sort of mathematical average, you know, I would say that Silicon Valley, the average Silicon Valley tech is ahead of the average Beijing tech. But on the other hand, there are a lot of very bright spots of things invented first in China, uh, uh, that I think, uh, other countries are learning from. I think that China employees work in a very competitive, very stressful, more stressful environment yeah maybe you know i think one 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 thing that um uh, some of your listeners might know but might be new to some of your listeners is that the u s internet ecosystem and the Chinese internet ecosystem have evolved into two almost entirely separate universes so if you're seeing the u s you might think that the internet has evolved certain ways, such as maybe the leading web search engine should also be able to read your emails. But the Chinese internet ecosystem just evolved in a different way. So right. the leading search uh, engine in China, uh, Baidu, uh, also operates a, a technology asset that's a bit like Wikipedia in the US. And so these two completely, almost completely different universes have led to different competitive forces because companies run different websites and different apps. And so they have different advantages and disadvantages I feel quite privileged that it's almost as if I got to see how, you know, if a butterfly had flapped its wings differently or something, how the universe could have evolved very differently.
1: It's like this sort of world through the mirror there in in China. It's this bizarre, bizarro world, yeah.
0: Mm As a sort of a follow-up to that question, I mean, I think until very recently, if you looked at the US media and European media, commentary on the Chinese internet tended to be, oh, it's all copycats and they're not innovating anything. The last six months, I would say you've seen a real sea change. I mean, there was just a, a, sle- a slew of articles in The Economist and various other publications suddenly talking up the Chinese internet as as, as this world of different possibilities But are there, do you think, any missing key ingredients in China in terms of building up a world-class technology ecosystem? And if there are missing ingredients, is that one of the reasons why your lab is here in Silicon Valley rather than in Beijing?
2: You know, I think that we have the two premier world-class tech ecosystems today are in Silicon Valley and in Beijing. And sometimes people talk about U.S. and China, but I actually think to be more precise is actually Silicon Valley and Beijing. And I think that both ecosystems are maybe quote, missing certain things that the other ecosystem maybe has a little bit more of. For example, I think that mobile is actually very far ahead. It's very sophisticated in China. Part of this is that in the US, a lot of the mobile ecosystem is controlled by two players, by Android and iOS. And this makes certain types of innovation harder. Whereas in some ways, the China mobile ecosystem allows uh, innovators and entrepreneurs to do certain things that you just cannot do in the US because of how much the Android and the iOS ecosystem systems are you know, somewhat more locked down. So there's been a ton of innovation there in China. I think that some areas of technology are probably ahead in the US. For example, the US still has better uh, GPU hardware, which is a key part of the way we do AI and deep learning. Although funny story, Baidu, Chinese internet company, was actually the first to build a GPU cluster for deep learning. And then the US American companies, I think, learn from that. So there's a lot of back and forth and interchange and learning from both sides, I think. Think.
1: Part of what you said just now about the mobile ecosystem being so advanced in China. Recently, we had Clay Shirky on the show. I don't know if you got a chance to hear that, uh, but we were talking about you. You talk about Beijing and Silicon Valley as the two uh, tech hubs, but we talked quite a bit about Shenzhen also as an important player, especially in hardware and the fact that uh, because so many of the people doing uh, hardware innovation in mobile, especially, are sitting right there. On top of the entire supply chain in Shenzhen, so they can iterate really quickly. They can prototype really quickly. They can you can walk down the street and talk to this ODM or 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 OEM manufacturer, and then and and get them to tweak this product that they're working on. Uh, so I, I guess Beijing is is only part of the equation. Beijing is great for yes for internet technologies and things like that. For uh, and maybe the best coders tend to congregate in Beijing. But uh, Shenzhen for hardware too, yeah? We oh, you're
2: them? absolutely right. Uh, Beijing is Silicon Valley, that software internet tech. And Shenzhen's amazing in, in having built up its own hardware uh, devices
1: ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. They're great. There are other things, though. I, I think cultural elements uh, that I think are, are definitely changing as well in, in China. I think if you had asked me that question that you just asked Jeremy about what's missing in a tech ecosystem, if you had asked me that 10 years ago, I would have said that there's uh, still a, a a lot missing in the culture of entrepreneurship in Beijing where people still tend to stigmatize failure, where people aren't encouraged to take risk. I mean, if you were graduating from Tsinghua University in computer science, you and your five buddies, you would probably rather go to work for... Uh, a Huawei, or for a Baidu, or for to an Alibaba or a Tencent, rather than strike out on your own. But that that really has changed. That is and absolutely changed. And it feels changed. as though
0: it's changed very rapidly in the last you know two three years. Suddenly, I felt as though Chinese people around me in Beijing, young people, were like, "Yeah, I want to do a startup. That's what I want to do." And
1: I think what's changed often is that that now there's this pantheon of heroes who have come out, uh, people who you know are, are akin to the the Steve Jobs and 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 the Bill Gateses of the world, uh, who. Uh, you know, now people look at, at the Jack Maas and the Pony Maas and the Robin Lee's of the world and they, they look at the legions of the world and they, they see successes in people who, uh, didn't go the sort of, Regular route, right?
2: Yeah. And I think what happened also is the um, entrepreneurial ecosystem has also grown up in in, in China. And this is not just the tech talent, which has been growing rapidly, but also the ecosystem of VC funding and, you know, even lawyers that know how to deal with all this stuff. Accountants,
1: right? Accountants. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. These are very important pieces. Uh, I want to move on and talk about one of the technologies that Baidu has been focused on with deep learning, and that's on speech recognition, uh, about the ability to transcribe spoken language, which we've seen improve rather dramatically in recent years um, to the point where it's actually usable now and, and not you know uniformly frustrating the way that it was just three or four years ago. Now, Baidu has focused a lot of effort on speech, and your deep speech team uh, here and and in Beijing has had some really remarkable results. Uh, particularly impressive to me was deep Mandarin, uh, which, I mean, maybe, maybe first you could give our listeners a layman's explanation of how deep learning is applied to the problem of speech recognition, and then we can talk about the Chinese language. Sure. So there's been a lot of buzz, really hype
2: about AI recently. And the shiniest part of that AI growth story is a technology called deep learning. Um,
1: you talk about it dismissively though. Is, is it all hype or is it, I thought it was pretty real, huh?
2: Oh, it is real. It's fantastic. It's changing the world. Okay. Uh, and it's also been a little bit overhyped. But okay. what, what do you expect? But I think what what we're finding is when we build these very large deep learning systems or artificial neural networks. We find that when we feed it a ton of data, it can learn very, very accurate predictions. So for example, when we feed it a ton of audio data, uh, really speech transcripts, what we found is that our neural networks can now transcribe speech far more accurately than anything we had previously built. In fact, given a short phrase taken out of context, our system is now able to transcribe a Mandarin speech, short phrase taken out of context, more accurately than even a normal person can. Better than humans can. Better than a typical human
1: can. Yeah, I mean, I remember I was here last year, uh, in the summer, and uh, I was still working at Baidu, and your guys played me a bunch of little phrases that were, I mean, they were muffled and muddy, and I couldn't understand what the hell they were saying, and I speak pretty good Chinese. And then once they, the, the, the machine said, okay, this is what they're saying, it was obvious, but I, I, mean, I could not possibly have gotten it. It was something like, you know, uh, or something like that. It was, it was, it's like, you know, uh, this television show that's airing tonight at nine, nine PM. It was completely out of context, but it was, uh, it was really remarkable. Now, now what, but what blew me away about this, okay, what, what's interesting to me is that you're not, going to some intermediary step of say pinion you're not you're not actually like figuring out okay this sound corresponds to this morpheme or to this phoneme and you're going directly outputting directly to characters right
2: yeah so one of the most exciting things about deep learning is that historically if you want to do speech recognition, you input the audio and then output maybe pinyin or phonemes or something, and then have another system for trying to map, to say, phonemes or pinyin to the final output. And so our team here had a, had a thesis, had a hypothesis, which fortunately turned out to be accurate, that um, a lot of these intermediate representations, like phonemes in the case of English, maybe pinyin in the case of Chinese, um, are not necessary. And in fact, they're like a slight oversimplification of of what sounds really sound like. So when I was starting out, I had some linguist friends that were really mad at me when I said that I thought phonemes are a fantasy of linguists rather than like a real thing that exists in the universe. Uh, but it turns out that when you blow away this Human linguist constructed concept of phoneme, you get a better speech recognition system. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have David Moser here to talk about this.
0: Um, can I ask, uh, just as somebody who's never worked for Baidu and you know possibly pour some cold water on this? When Kaiser first got very excited about uh, the the Mandarin rec- uh, speech recognition, uh, my first reaction was, well, Siri seems to do that. You know what's the difference? You know what's the difference between Baidu system and 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 the other systems out there in other languages. Uh, so
2: I don't want to compare it to any one specific uh, other search engine, but I'll just say that there are differences between different search engines between speech systems today in terms of how accurately they mm-hmm. transcribe it. Uh, so we believe we're the best in the world in Mandarin speech, and we seem to be one of the top ones. You know, maybe top three. Uh, sometimes some people think we're top one. Sometimes. Depending on who's evaluating what, in English.
0: Let, let let me ask the question a different way and avoid an odious uh, comparison. Um, what's different about Mandarin from English in terms
1: of speech recognition? Is
0: there is there something that has is there a different problem that needs to be
1: solved, or, or is your answer to that there's no difference? I mean, I thought that yeah, was kind of
0: a... one of the cool things. One of the maybe
2: slight surprises was that maybe from the perspective of a AI system, there is less difference between English and Mandarin. Uh, so Chomsky was right. I think I have a lot of problems with a lot of Chomsky's theories, but having said that, we do have a sufficiently, you know, universal learning algorithm that, uh, you feed it English audio, it learns to transcribe English, you feed it Chinese audio, it learns with very few changes, almost no changes to transcribe Mandarin.
1: You should try this with other languages. I mean, you should, you should get a gigantic database of Swahili or, or of, 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 you know, uh, Jeremy, you could gather up some South African languages. and uh,
2: Yeah, so, you know, here's, here's one, uh, uh, the Achilles heel of a lot of what we do is a hunger for data. This is why it also transcribes speech so well. Um, if I were to pull out my laptop and start playing to you, the audio data we use to train our speech recognition system uh, will be sitting here for five years before we're done listening to all the data that is trained on, so uh, we can train these things in Swahili or various other languages.
1: We need five yeah. years' worth. <laughs> well, yeah,
2: we need a lot of data, and I think this is why. Also, I think some of the hype about AI is overblown. You know, we have this amazing engine for learning from huge amounts of data to transcribe speech, predict uh, if you return a loan in time, predict you know what what web page query to give to you when you do a web search. Uh, it's an amazing engine, but it needs so much data, far more than most humans need. In order to do these tasks, which is why I think that even though AI is transforming the world, we'll change industry after industry using AI, uh, we're also a long ways away from building something as intelligent as, as like a normal person.
0: That's kind of reassuring. Um,
1: <laughs> One of the things that I've really noticed I mean, you talk about the, the hunger for, for all this data, that it's necessary to train these systems on, on just uh, oodles of, of data. And uh, is that part of the reason why we've seen this trend in recent years, in say the last five years, seeing all these? Great AI scientists migrating to large private internet companies. I mean, is it in part because they have that data? I mean, if somebody's going to have five years worth of recorded speech, it's going to be a Google or a Facebook or a a Microsoft or a, a Baidu.
2: Yeah. I would say that right now, AI does need a lot of capital in terms of the data and the big iron, and the huge machines to train these things. And so the large internet companies do have a huge advantage. I would say that, you know, like a small startup, if, if I were, you know, leading like a 10-person team outside Baidu, I would have no idea how to build a speech recognition system
1: that's competitive
2: with what a large company like Baidu can do today.
1: Right. Even if you were at a major research institution like Stanford? Where you were
2: yeah I think even universities uh, have difficulty getting access to the scale of data and capital needed to build these and but I should say only some AI applications are squarely in the bull'seye of the large tech companies like by doing Google and Facebook and Microsoft those would be very difficult with the existing technology for a small research lab to compete with, but I do think that AI you know AI isn't just about three or four applications it's about uh, hundreds or thousands of different applications and so So I think that there are many other smaller verticals, like you know maybe medical imaging or some uh, logistics routing optimization, or I don't know. I have some friends work on an app to predict how many calories a, a piece of food have from a picture. There are a lot of verticals like that where a small organization could. Uh, operate effectively, uh-huh. but, but the things are squarely in the bullseye of a big company. It'd just be hard for a small team to get the data. Yeah, you know, we're seeing a change with the rise of AI. We're seeing a shift in the way companies compete as well. In AI, we, we now live in a world where a lot of ideas are open source and that by do we publish our ideas, many of our ideas quite freely. So we're finding that the defensible barrier for these businesses we're built is the data, even more than the algorithms. Uh, the data is becoming the defensible barrier. In, in building new businesses as we enter
1: this AI era, yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: And it becomes more and more difficult over time. When you, I mean, the, the barrier gets higher and higher. I would imagine because you've got the history.
2: Yeah. So because of uh, Baidu voice search, you know, we get a, or really because of Baidu's various voice products, we just get great data about what people are looking for, and so it's
1: virtuous very difficult. virtuous circle. Right? Yeah. So.
0: Can we turn to a related topic? I, I believe it's not your focus, but I'd like to just ask a little bit about autonomous driving and driverless cars. What's the latest on, on what Baidu is doing? And, you know, what are the relative advantages and disadvantages that US and China companies might have in rolling out se- such technologies? And finally, sorry for a multi-part question, but one thing that always occurs to me when I read about driverless cars is why? Why don't you solve world poverty first? Why are all the world's biggest tech companies devoting resources to this?
2: So, um, boy, I'm super excited about autonomous driving. Uh, why are we working on it? Well, 3,000 people a day die from car accidents. And I think that- In
1: China or uh, globally? Been, okay. uh, about 500 a day Most in China. Most of them in China. <laughs> uh, 500 five, five, five a day in China, 3,000 globally. I think it's um, like the number three cause of death in China. I think it's, it's, it's insane.
2: Yeah, so so imagine if we could solve that or take away a large fraction of these deaths. It's one of the things that will, uh, and and you know these numbers are so academic, right? But it's only if you've had a friend get injured or die in a car accident. Well, that happens three thousand times a day, and in fact, I feel like that at some point, you know, maybe twenty years from now, fifty years from now, most driving will be autonomous, and the number of deaths from uh human created car accidents would be much closer to zero. And so I feel that any one day that we can bring this to fruition uh is another three thousand lives saved. So we have almost a moral imperative to make this happen as soon as possible. So why why buy do? You know I think that a lot of companies have been taking the wrong approach to autonomous driving. Uh, the way to make a car drive autonomously is not to make it drive just like a human. For example, if you are driving your car and you see a construction worker standing in the middle of the road gesturing at you, you need to interpret that construction worker's gestures correctly to know right. if they want you to stop or go or do something else. No computer vision, no AI system today can reliably distinguish between these different, very different gestures that the construction worker has you know, waving at you. And the way to make cars safe is not to work even harder to make computer vision able to interpret these gestures. The way to make it work is to give that construction worker an app so they can just clarify, exactly specify what they want your car to do. So I think to make autonomous cars a reality in the near term, it will take little changes, just modest changes to regulations and the way we run the roads, such as asking these construction workers to use an app. Um And so I think the countries that are able to make these changes, uh, be it US or China or other countries, will, will have a much better chance of making this a reality sooner.
1: So you're making an implicit case that China, as an authoritarian country, uh, one that is sort of able to to do top-down regulation uh, maybe more effectively, uh, has an advantage in that way?
2: You know, I I, I think it remains to be seen. I, okay. I'm, I'm seeing very interesting activity in Singapore. Um, I'm seeing encouraging signs of progress in Another the US and China. <laughs> <laughs> right,
1: right. No, that, that's that's very interesting. I think that government attitudes and, and also... But what about the demand side of the equation? Um, does does China... Uh, is there is there a huge... I mean, I, I know... In, in the United States, the rate of car ownership is something like 10 times what it is in China right now, and, and it's not feasible for Chinese to, to own cars at the rate that Americans do. But most cars, what, they, they sit in a parking lot while you're you know at work for eight, nine hours a day. Uh, there's a lot of, what, underutilized inventory or uh, you know, underutilization of resources. Uh, isn't this something that, that self-driving cars could conceivably address in China?
2: Yeah, so I think it's quite clear that in addition to improving safety, uh self-driving cars will lower the costs. And the data we've seen shows that consumers in both US and China are price sensitive. So ride sharing, these things, if the price go down significantly, there will be significantly more users. Right,
1: right, right, right. So um getting back to big data, we were talking about the concentration of of data in the hands of these massive internet companies. The other institutions that have at their disposal. An awful lot of data are, of course, governments. And when people in the US and other maybe Western countries hear about a large Chinese search engine focusing resources on big data, I mean, you are in charge of three labs, you know, the Silicon Valley AI lab here, uh, the Institute of Deep Learning, and also- Yeah, more the, than that, actually. The, yeah, oh, yeah, now, now yeah. more than yeah. that. Okay. this I, my My data is out of date. But anyway, when when people hear about big Chinese search engines or big Chinese internet companies at all uh, working on uh, big data, visions of Big Brother, they come to mind immediately. And quite a number of people have already written about the ways that the Chinese leadership will harness or is indeed already harnessing data that's called by Chinese internet companies. I mean, for a while, all this talk about the social credit system, I mean, there was no smoking gun on any of this, but we we had a lot of articles being written uh, that I saw about this. Uh, for a while, you know, they were saying that the games that you played or the videos that you watched or your online purchases would, would rank you in your sort of political reliability uh, in in the eyes of the government like this info totalitarian kind of credit ranking scheme. Is there anything yeah. to that? Or, um, you
2: know, I have to say, I, I personally have not been working directly with the Chinese government, so I don't have firsthand knowledge of that. Uh, the closest I've come to that is um, trying to work on one of our anti-porn filters. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I, I do have to say that I think that uh, the question of the future role of AI in government has a, is, is an important question. Sure. So, for example, I think as a matter of public record that, you know, since the last U.S. presidential election, that AI data science analytics has been incredibly effective at micro-targeting um, voters so that uh, political campaigns can send, you know, try to send influential messages and target the voters that could be most influenced in order to vote for you. So I think that right now we have another U.S. presidential election coming up, uh, uh, and I guess I'm, fam- I'm more familiar with one of the parties which has built up <laughs> a very sophisticated data science organization. But, you know, is it fair that a party with a better or worse data organization might have an advantage or disadvantage? I think that's a serious question. Um,
1: well, in I this case, know, yes.
2: <laughs> and I, I do know that uh, uh, in the Middle East, there is one con- there is one country, a uh, Middle Eastern country, whose government, I know for a fact, is set a sophisticated data science organization with their, they say, anti-terrorism techniques. And again, where should we steer the technology to make sure it has the greatest good for humanity? I think but these are all great questions.
0: Can we talk about augmented reality and why Baidu is focusing on this when so many other Chinese tech companies are focusing on virtual reality? Uh, you know, What is it about AR that you think will make a more sensible bet now than virtual reality for the, for the China market? And perhaps we can also just define the difference for our listeners between augmented and virtual reality, sure,
2: so usually uh the term virtual reality means usually it means putting a pair of goggles right. and then having you immerse yourself entirely inside the virtual world, whereas the term augmented reality is more a pokemon go, whereas a blend of a virtual world such as you know some pokemon character that you're trying to catch uh, together with the physical world, such as whatever you're seeing you know in in, in this park where you're trying to catch a pokemon. So several weeks ago, we announced Baidu's augmented reality platform. And I think what we're doing is focusing on a cell phone based augmented reality platform. There's been a lot of hype about. Both VR and AR, virtual reality and augmented reality. Uh, frankly, I think part of this is that Silicon Valley today is increasingly driven by a herd mentality, right? Where, you know, if one company does something like VR, well, everyone else has to do it because they're afraid of missing up on the next big platform. So this, this does create a little bit of a, a echo chamber in Silicon Valley where you find all the large companies doing very surprisingly similar things. Having said that, though, I think that I'm I'm bullish on cell phone-based augmented reality. And the reason is by doing an app distribution, by doing an app update, really, our augmented reality platform is already today installed on hundreds of millions of cell phones. Whereas the traditional way, the way that a lot of other companies are going about VR or AR is by building VR or AR goggles. And it's just really, really tough to ship hardware to hundreds of millions of people and convincing hundreds of millions of people to spend uh, tens or hundreds of dollars to buy your AR or VR goggles. Over the long term, I think VR and AR has a lot of potential, a lot of verticals. It will take off. But I think in the short term, cell phone-based AR, which is where we've been betting for the short term, will take off much faster than the approaches
1: that require shipping hardware. So what are some of the applications that you, you see rolling out in the immediate future on the Baidu AR platform?
2: Yeah, so one of the things we've been doing is work with partners to to enable them to place AR effect onto their product. So for example, a while back, we worked with a milk producer, uh, Yili Nuna, Yili Milk, uh, so that when you use your cell phone, you could get an AR effect on top of a uh, milk carton. Uh, also, we're working with uh, Ultra Duo, which comes from L'Oreal, so that if you see one of the postcards, you, know, you can get a fun effect. So to be honest, I think we're in the early stages. I, I, I'm listing some of the concrete examples of things we've already shipped, right. but I think that there are there are a lot of other verticals, you know, ranging from better web search. Maybe if you search a sofa, maybe instead of just showing you a picture of a sofa, maybe we can show you what the sofa will look like in your house. So you can decide if you want to buy or not. Oh, so we're Exploring a lot of other
1: ideas right now. Sort of three-dimensional images of things that you can kind of spin and yeah.
2: I mean, them. imagine you know If you want to do, if you want to buy a sofa in China, if you do a tech search, you know, you, you you get some useful stuff like you figure where to buy it, how much it costs. If you do an image search, you can see what sofas look like. But if you could do an augmented reality search, then you could see what the sofa will look like in your living room, and that seems even more useful.
1: I see. So you could superimpose it on, you know, when you looking at your living room, you can like. Just stick that couch there. In the yeah, you're much
2: more than I am, guys. Hold up your cell phone uh, to your own living room, and and whether we can superimpose mm-hmm. what the sofa will, what yeah. will look like in your living room.
1: That would be very cool. That would be very cool. Uh, so one, one of the things that you you've been sort of famous for of late is that you've dismissed or even maybe ridiculed some of the concerns <laughs> that people have had about the armies of killer robots, uh, but. One thing that you have expressed concern about is how artificial intelligence is going to disrupt labor. Yeah. Uh, China, of course, is one would think particularly vulnerable to this kind of disruption because so much of it is sort of low-skill, low-value-add, blue-collar work, and they those people outnumber the so-called creative class, the professionals. Talk about what AI is going to do in China and where your thinking is taking you about how we can harness its power without... Suffering too much of the collateral damage to to labor and how we can prep against that,
2: yeah, you know, so I'm really bullish on AI. There's an analogy I've started making recently that I think AI is the new electricity and and what I mean is that just as about a hundred years ago when we started to build up you know the electricity infrastructure that didn't just transform one industry, right? I think lighting was the first killer app of electricity, but electricity wasn't just about electric lights. It it, it transformed industry after industry, everything from agriculture, manufacturing, transportation, communications, and many more. So in a similar way, I think uh, maybe the first killer app of AI, you know, for Baidu was web and 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 advertising, but the future of AI is that we won't transform just one industry, we'll transform transportation, medicine, education, uh, uh, and many, many other industries. And I think the, and, and so sometimes I found it challenging to explain to, um, non-AI people how I can be so optimistic that AI would transform industry after industry, but not so optimistic that AI will soon, you know, be our evil overlords because they can sponsor sure. us and so on. Having said that, I think the, as you said, Kaiser, the biggest challenge the AI will bring to us in the short term, and in fact, I think it's already happening, is the challenge to labor where we will displace jobs, sadly. And even if we don't entirely displace a job, if we can do just 10% of someone's job, that might be enough to start putting downward pressure on wages. Right. So I think that when the U.S. started moving from farming jobs to manufacturing jobs and the manufacturing jobs to services jobs, we had to build up a new education system. And that led to our current U.S. system of the K-12 through as well as the university system. I think that as AI starts to change the nature of work, we will need, again, a new education system that's built for this new AI-enabled era.
0: Um, Okay, well, that's a great segue into the question I wanted to uh, ask you. We've talked today mainly about Baidu, but of course, you're also chairman and co-founder of Coursera. Could you talk a little bit about the state of online education?
2: So I think that the MOOC massive open online courses hype from a few years ago has has died down, thankfully, but I think the MOOC movement of taking some of the best education from universities from other places and putting that online and making it accessible that movement continues to grow strongly so what we 're seeing is that we have more and more learners that are coming to online sources such as Coursera or or other companies like edX, Udacity and so on in order to take sequences of courses and the culmination of these sequences of courses is that it really opens up their opportunities for finding better employment. So the story about education giving individuals better opportunities is getting stronger and stronger and I think more and more learners are are just coming to to, to Coursera or other websites uh, in order to seek really a meaningful change in their professional life.
1: But this is still mostly post-secondary education we're talking about here uh, with, with MOOCs and other things. Um, is this really... I mean, so when we're talking, you, you, Jeremy, you helpfully pointed out that, that, that this was related to what we were just talking about, labor disruption. It's not college graduates whose jobs are being necessarily disrupted by ai it's going to be you know people with less than a high school education and they're not the ones who are necessarily going to benefit from the application of online education or from the development of online education what what do you think we ought to be thinking about in terms of restructuring the education system in america and do you you have that kind of faith in the plasticity of human brains right now that we we think we can take these these folks who are stubbornly entrenched in this combination of, of poverty and, and low levels of education. But I mean, do, you, do you have that kind of faith in the plasticity of, of human learning capability?
2: Yeah, as I, and and I think this faith in human possibility, learning, sometimes called the growth mindset, is this thesis that almost anyone can learn to do almost anything. And there's a lot of data that supports that. You know, I'm I'm I don't think anyone can learn to do anything. I don't think I'm tall enough to ever be a fantastic basketball player or something.
1: Although, for the record, uh, you're pretty tall. I see.
2: Sure. Yes. Thank you. Uh, uh, but 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 I think that the human brain is so flexible that given time, and it's tough. Almost anyone, I believe, can learn almost anything. And I think, you know, Kai, to your point, I think that some of the disruption will be with people with less than a um, college education, but I think that there'll also be a lot of jobs, like, you know, radiologists, highly trained doctors, but I think that pretty soon uh technology, really computer vision technology, will start disrupting their work. So I think that both pre-college and post-college, we need better opportunities You know, this is what I think is uh, one of the biggest challenges of education. The short-term impact of education is very, very little, right? So, you know, if if, if one of your listeners uh, goes and spends a Saturday studying day and night, sorry, studying all day on a Saturday, well, the next Monday, they're not actually that much better at their job. Their boss probably doesn't know. They spend all Saturday working. They're not going to get a raise that Monday. So short-term impact, almost none. Mm -hmm. But here's the secret. If one of your listeners works really hard, not just on one Saturday, but they do it Saturday day after Saturday, and they do that for a year. After a year, they will learn a lot, and that will be enough for them to uh, make a meaningful change in their career. So sadly, people, humans, most humans, including myself, we tend to be much more attracted to short-term, glitzy, shiny things and short-term rewards. But sadly, a lot of the rewards of education are long-term.
0: You actually have to work
2: you actually actually work. work, and the ROI is profound. <laughs> yeah. but, but you have to get yourself to do it.
1: Yeah, you get in what you put in, you get so, out what you put in.
2: So there's one other idea that I'm excited about. Uh, Here in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of leaders that are saying that the U.S. should put in place universal basic income, this idea of providing a guaranteed minimum income Mm -hmm. that government just pays to provide everyone a safety net. The biggest problem with basic income is that it's too expensive. So there's a variation on basic income that I would favor, which is if, say, the U.S. government pays you not to, quote, do nothing. But if the government pays you to study, because uh, I believe that the ROI of paying an individual to study so that they can hopefully you know, have a better shot at returning to the workforce and then later contributing back to the tax base. I think that could be a better solution for the new educational system we need to put in place in this AI-enabled era.
1: All for that. That's <laughs> good. I mean, it's, a, it's a terrific idea, and I've heard many people now talking about it. Andrew, it's been terrific catching up with you, and I am very grateful that you could take the time to join us. So please stick around and make a recommendation with us, would you? Sure, I'd love to. So before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at News and on Facebook also at Facebook.com slash News. Recommendations, Jeremy, as is our habit, you may begin.
0: Okay, I've got one that's uh, not a China recommendation today. Uh, There's a writer named Larry McMurtry, who I guess I should have. Yes, I should have heard of, but is new to me. So he wrote Lonesome Dove, which won a Pulitzer Prize. I mean, most of his work is novels and screenplays about, you know, the Wild West, cowboys. He was also co author of the screenplay of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. um, And I mean, really interesting. The guy actually comes from a cowboy family. His family were settlers in in West Texas. Uh, So he grew up amongst actual real cowboys and somehow became, you know, one of the world's leading book collectors uh, and author of many, many books. So he recently published a book called Walter Benjamin at the Dairy Queen, which is part autobiography and part a reflection on his life of reading and also on the themes that he's written about on cowboys and the American West. And it's a slim volume, really wonderful
1: read. I think of him as Cormac McCarthy without the self-importance and the... Exactly,
0: without the macho (laughs) (laughs) bullshit.
1: Andrew, what do you have for us?
2: So I'm going to recommend a book called Talking to Humans by Jeff Constable and Frank Rimolowski. Those of you that know my background might find this surprising since I'm sort of a hot technology, you know, AI kind of guy. And uh, Talking to Humans is about, I think so much of the work we do, be it building companies or products or services or whatever, is because we want to help people and I found Talking to Humans to be a very insightful book about how, whether you're trying to start a new coffee shop or build a new mobile app or uh, start a you know something else, uh, start a nonprofit, how to have the conversations with people that helps us quickly get an understanding of what we can really do to help them. So you
1: Talking actually you you run a, a a weekly book club here at Baidu, as I understand right.
2: Yeah, actually, we have so many book clubs in Baidu. Maybe one of my beliefs is that your learning should not be a one-off event, it should be a lifestyle. And so at Baidu, uh, Talking to Humans was one of the books we read, as well as a whole lot of others.
1: Oh, cool. I'll have to get your full list at some point. <laughs> Great. So my recommendation, also, sadly, not China-related, uh, is the New York Times series on the Arab Spring and its aftermath by Scott Anderson. It's called Fractured Lands. Uh, so we're recording right now uh, toward... The so it's, it's August 22nd today. Uh, it ran, what, about a week ago? So it was in mid-August. I'm, I'm not sure of the exact date, but uh, Scott Anderson is actually brother of John Lee Anderson, the New Yorker writer. I didn't realize that until very recently. Um, a terrific series where they focus on six individuals uh, from from Libya, from Tunisia, from, uh, from Syria, from Iraq, and all, all over the Middle East. And it's just fascinating. Ordinarily, it sort of bothers me this whole conceit that you can kind of shoehorn uh, a, a region's microcosm, uh, macrocosmic story, into this the microcosm of an individual. But it really works well in this case. I think it, it it really does. He's chosen these vehicles very, very well, and they do tell a kind of cogent narrative of of the Arab Spring and its aftermath. One of the most important, I think, uh, events of, of our time that that really needs to be well understood. Mm, wow. Yeah, well, Andrew. Thanks again. Uh, it was just so so great to have you, and uh,
2: so good to have you visit our offices again, Kaiser. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, Jeremy, as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's been
1: a delight. The Cynical Podcast is powered by Sup China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and myself and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Chang, to Amadeo Tumalulo and to Saraya Darabi from Sup China and to Brian Cottonsaro for baking delicious uh, pecan raisin bread for us, and all misses bread. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.